Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Every behavior has a payoff. And I find myself asking myself, what's the payoff in behaving the way that I am? And if I'm letting my past control me, uh, there's a part of me that can that gives permission to living as a victim and uh, where, where to the point where I'm less responsible. It, it's easier to live as a victim than it is to live as a fully empowered agent of someone who can change and can create the life that they want to that they want to live. But if we live as a as a victim, we, we can have excuses. We can have excuses for why we don't do certain things, uh, virtuous things, because we have this we have this bad past. And so I kind of start with what's the payoff? And I and do we want to be a victim or do we want to live a richer life? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. John, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it is really my pleasure to have you here. You know, I was introduced to you by way of our mutual friend, Mike Rohde, who said you had a really amazing story. And, and fortunately, I got to read your book um, pretty much cover to cover in, in the span of about a day. And now I know mm. why he referred you as a guest. So um, I want to start with a question that uh, really kind of arose from, you know, reading what you have written about. And I, I thought it would be a really sort of fitting way to start. And that was, what is the most important thing that you learned growing up from your father that has had an impact on your life and your work? Hmm. That's, that's a really interesting question. Um, we had a strained relationship at best, but I, I really learned uh, from him how to uh, persevere, to keep trying. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then there, there's, a, I think, the significant moment in, that I wrote about um, in the book where uh, our neighbor, a neighbor kid died. He was killed in a car crash. And and it was such a shock to my brother and I and my sisters, and you know we didn't know what to make of this. And then the evening that it happened, I, I looked out the window of our house and I saw my dad walking down the street with my neighbor in the middle of the street. We were in a quiet, sleepy residential neighborhood, and and uh, he was walking down uh, the street. The father of my friend who had been killed, and and my dad had his arm over his shoulder, and they were they were just talking, and. Um, it, it was such an interesting contrast to me because uh, he had a difficult time relating with me, but he had an easier time relating with uh, with adults, and and um, uh, it really gave me a, a more compassion for my father. And actually, the more I think about it, as the years have passed, that that compassion has grown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the the other thing that I think is is really interesting um, about this is that I know you know from reading the book that you were adopted, and I was really curious, kind of 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 the moment uh, about the moment when you realized that that was the truth. You know, I, I know you wrote about it in the book, but I'm curious. Take us take us to that moment when you're told about that. Sure. Well, I had uh, been uh, taking accordion lessons, which uh, apparently was pretty popular back in the late fifties, <laughs> and <laughs> it's making a resurgence now. When I when I tell when I've told this story before, some people start laughing when they hear the word accordion, but actually, it's it's really making um, a resurgence. But anyway, I was taking these accordion lessons, and um, it was on a sunny day in July, and I wanted to be outside with my brother and neighbor guys playing baseball because that's what we did all summer we played baseball from sun up to sun sundown and and it was just a great community of, of, of boys uh you know playing baseball and and i was less interested in playing the accordion i've been playing it for about two years and uh, i was not very disciplined with it and my mother was trying all kinds of things to get me to play and one afternoon i think she had had it and uh she came into my bedroom and closed the door and uh, I was sitting on my bed with the music stand in front of me, and my brother had a twin bed opposite me. And and um, she sat down and and just started, you know, lecturing me about, you know, the importance of playing the accordion. And and then she said, with this huge sigh, she said, "And besides, you know, we didn't have any money to buy this accordion for you. And the least that you can do is play it because your your dad isn't really your real father, and he didn't have to buy this for you." Mm-hmm. And needless to say, I was just shocked. I, I had no inclination that, that that was the case. And I, I said to her, well, what do you mean he's not my real dad? And and she said, well, your real father was a truck driver from Indiana, and, and he would drive up to Milwaukee to deliver empty beer cans to the breweries in town. And he was your real father. And... Um, 
you know, and he he never supported us. I'd asked her about that. Well, did he, how did he support us? And she said he didn't. He said he had his family of his own back in in Indiana. And needless to say, that was quite shocking. Uh, so it it really affected me for quite some time, and uh, to the point that I I wanted to find out more. And when I was about twenty, I was uh, home from college and. We were sitting in the live in the uh, our dining little kitchen, and my mother was washing dishes, and my father, my stepfather, was sitting there drinking coffee and smoking a cigarette. and And I, I said to my my mom, whose back was to me, she was facing the sink. I said, "Hey, mom, remember about when I was about ten, and you told me dad wasn't my real dad?" And then the the sentence cut off because my father, my stepfather, got really upset, and he. Uh, pounded his fist on the table and said he died in a truck accident and that's all we're ever going to talk about that and he just stormed out of the room I go oh it's not safe to talk about this subject so so I lived with that for a while and then actually for about 20 years and a friend of mine an older man he was actually about my father's age um, we became friends through our church and he was doing some genealogical research, and there's a genealogical society in Milwaukee, and he told me he was uh, going to be joining and going down to the meetings to learn how to uh, do the genealogy of his family. And I said, you know, that's something I'd be interested in doing, but I, I'm really more interested in tracking down my birth father. And he said, well, just come on, come on along. So I did. And so for a couple of months, he and I would go down to the Milwaukee Public Library every Monday night and attend these meetings. And... And I learned how to uh, do some genealogical research, but it, it bothered me for quite some quite some time because the theme that kept running through my head and my heart is, well, I never should have been born. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but but tracking my my birth father down on that whole process really was was quite energizing, and uh, it was actually the I, I, I kind of enjoyed it more than I think I should have. <laughs> um, but it was it was just quite energizing, and I ended up eventually finding him. Uh huh. So, so uh, you know, I I remember very distinctly reading that part of, of you know you saying that you thought you shouldn't have been born, and I'm curious, you know, when we have debilitating narratives like that in our lives, uh, how do we let go of them, and how did you let go of this one? Well, that took a long time. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I think searching for him was really helpful, and and then uh, bringing some friends into the picture, too. I write about a particular couple who uh, my wife Jan and I would get together occasionally uh, to talk about just life in general, and they knew that I was searching for my birth father, and, and uh, they would ask me, you know, how it's going, and I remember the first time we started talking about it. We were at a restaurant, and I just started crying. It just and it was it was so shocking to me that I was crying about this. But it was it was just uh, so impactful uh, on me, and 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 de- you know it was depressing. My birthdays were always just kind of depressing kinds of things. And as I was searching for my birth father, they became even more so. Mm-hmm. Well, one day uh, we were going out, and and uh, I said I don't want to talk about this because uh, I don't want to. I want to enjoy our friends. I want to enjoy the evening. I don't want to be talking about something that's depressing. Well, they, um, we got to the restaurant, and I dropped my wife off, and uh, they uh, had gotten a table in the corner of the restaurant. And when I walked in, uh, it was quite dark, and on my uh, on my chair, they had uh, tied a balloon, and the uh, helium-filled balloon, and it said, "It's a, it's a congratulations, it's a boy," and they had a card that you would give a parent uh, announcing the birth of a child, and they said, uh, "You know, it's a boy, and congratulations, and we're just so glad you were born." And th- that symbolic act, for some reason, just really lifted me. And I really, that was the beginning of being healed from that whole thing, that I was, uh, it was okay that I was born and, and it, it didn't matter how I came into the world, but, but it's how you move through the world and how you leave the world. That's, that's the most important thing. So um, that was, and then just um, my faith journey with God, you know, there's a, a passage in the Bible, it's in the Gospel of John that talks about 
how uh, we are all we are God's child, and not um, not so much the decision of a man or a woman, but it was really God's decision that I be here on earth, and that just my my illegitimate birth just happened to be the means that He chose to bring me here. So, and that's okay. That's okay. You know, it's interesting because uh, as I was going through that section of the book, you know, I, I couldn't help but think about all the sort of weird things that we, you know, deal with when it comes to parenthood. Like children and their parents always have, you know, some sort of part of their relationship that is far from perfect. Like who really lives the, you know, the the perfect Carol Brady or Leave It to Beaver life? Nobody's parents are really like that. Um, and, you know, I think the, the thing that's really mm-hmm. interesting, uh, I think, about your situation is that you've resolved whatever this tension is with your parents. And I'm curious uh, about two things. One, how we resolve whatever issues, you know, we have as adults, uh, you know, that might have been the result of our childhood that, you know, are uh, a byproduct of our relationship with our parents. And then two, how has, you know, the experience of how you were raised uh, impacted the way that you have raised your own children? Okay. Well, uh, well, yes, really good question, Cerny. The first thing I I remember quite distinctly uh, when I was in college, uh, coming home uh, to Milwaukee and riding into town on a Greyhound bus, sitting in the back. And all of a sudden, I just heard this voice within my heart, nothing audible um, about coming home for that weekend because I was pretty ambivalent. uh, there was part of me that that wanted to come home and part of me that didn't because of all the dysfunction that was going on. And what I heard at that moment from God was, you know, they they did the best they could. Could you cut them a little slack? And that was just really freeing for me to think about that. And, I, and, it, and it made me think about their life. You know, we don't, as a child, we often don't think about the lives of our parents, uh, what they were like before they had us. But I was thinking about my mother, and you know, she was a farm girl and from northern Minnesota, and to be be living in a big city that she had no relatives and and no support system, and to find out she's pregnant and what that meant back in back in the late '40s after the war, and who could she talk to about that? Uh, and, you know, she made some some bad decisions in life, but you know, she she. Was, and was living with the consequences of that. But, but she was really doing the best she could. And the same for my father, too. Mm-hmm. And so that phrase just really helps me in terms of forgiving them and, and even other people, too. That, you know, for the most part, people are, are doing the best they can. And we could all do better. And we should all be trying to do better. But sometimes we just have some baggage that, that limits us from, from doing that. Mm-hmm. To answer the second part of your question, how's that how's that affected uh, how I raise my own children? Um, I raised them very differently. I I, I didn't want to be like my parents. I wanted to I wanted to be involved in my kids' lives. I wanted to I wanted to nurture them. And you know, I didn't read any parenting books. Uh, there weren't a lot of a lot of them around at the time when our kids were born in the seventies. Uh, there there were a few, not like there are now. Um, but, uh, that, that experience growing up with my, with my own family, I really wanted to have a, a closer relationship. And one expression I heard from uh, Dr. Laura, she used to have a radio program on, um, I don't know if she's still on Laura Schlesinger. She said, when you parent well, it's, and you've had, and you were not parented well yourself, it's a way of filling in that hole in your heart that by parenting well, you in some essence, are reparenting yourself. And I found that to be true. I found the, the more that, that I could be a good father, uh, the less impact not having a good father had on me. Mm-hmm. So, Why do you think certain people respond the way you did and others um, would basically carry that pattern forward? Boy, I don't know. That, that, that's a really good question. I... I, I uh, I didn't want to be a victim. I didn't want to be controlled by that. I realized that I had choices, and I just, I just did not want to be limited by, by that. I wanted, I wanted my dysfunctional childhood to be something that uh, I, I could actually benefit from, rather than, than hindering me. Mm-hmm. It, it, it gave me um, a greater compassion for people. 
it, it gave me greater understanding of of people. I'm I'm more I think I'm more I'm a more sensitive person as a result of going through those difficulties. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things that I, that um, really struck a chord with me, you know, I, I've got so much of your book underlined and, and highlighted from reading yesterday, <laughs> but this, this one in particular at the very beginning, you said, you know, too many of us give a lot of power to other people to define us. What others think of us often becomes way too important. I like hanging around people who have a grounded sense of who they are and are not swayed by the judgment of others. And, you know, I, I love that. What I am really curious about is based on sort of your work and, and everything that you've done in your life experience, how do you develop that grounded sense of who you are and, uh, you know, not let yourself be swayed by the judgment of others? Because I can tell you throughout my life, there are moments when I feel, you know, that I don't have this grounded sense of who I am and I am swayed by the judgment of my parents, my peers, uh, lots of people. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, especially as somebody who has a public presence that's, you know, on somewhere, somewhere or another judged on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah, for for me, it it uh, goes back to my relationship with God, and I use the expression we play to an audience of one, and that the only person that we really need to be pleasing and and be concerned about what they think of us is really God, because if we are if we are pleasing God and and living a life that God has called us to live, um, other things are going to fall into place. Doesn't mean there won't be criticism or judgment. But it's going to have less power because it doesn't mean that much. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, you know, it, no one no one likes to be criticized. No one likes to um, be thought ill of. And but sometimes we can learn from those things too. But then we have to decide um, what are they what are they saying about us that's accurate, and what are they saying about us that's about something else. It might be about them. Mm-hmm. It might be about about circumstances. And I guess I've just learned to. To kind of shut off that noise of of criticism, but but always asking myself, um, is there any truth to what they're saying? And if there is, well, then change, you know. But but oftentimes it's it's really it's about other things actually. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's that's a function of age too. The older the older I get, anyway, the the less the less uh, that really matters. And I think that's true for most people. So what role has um, age played in, in your faith in God? I'm very curious about that because uh, I always you know, jokingly remember the Bill Cosby thing that he says in one of his stand-up comedy bits. He said, old people get religious because they want to make sure they're going to get into heaven. <laughs> and I've, I've seen my parents become more religious as they've gotten older. And I'm, I'm not particularly religious, which is why you know, it's always interesting for me to talk to people like you because um, I feel like even if you're not religious, faith can play a role in your life. And I'm curious what you have to say about that. Yeah, uh, I think uh, the, the more I get to know God over the years, and it takes a long time. It takes a really a long time to to get to know God and what He expects of us. And I read the Bible on a regular basis, and I learn things new all the time. Um, but if I when I foc- when I find myself focusing on on God, um, uh, what people say, what people think. Uh, play less of a role in, in my life and my, my values um, my values um, I want to coincide with the values that, that God has and I, I've lived parts of my life where the things that were uh, really important to me over time I realize aren't as important like things like money um, but it takes time to to come to that conclusion where you see the emptiness and some of the values that our society, uh, purports, and you start to see higher values and a greater richness in what God has to say. And primarily in the last several years, last maybe 10 years, I'm really seeing them, the, 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 the high value that God places in relationships and relationships with him and relationships with people, because those are, those, those are the things that are fulfilling, not, not material goods. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a, I had a business that, that was quite successful and I, I could have kept doing that and making more money, and I enjoyed my business. I enjoyed cutting, making deals that generated lucrative earnings, uh, but it was becoming less and less fun. And I started moving into this whole area of caring for missionaries. My wife and I formed this ministry, this nonprofit organization, that uh, that has been much more fulfilling, mm-hmm. not lucrative at all, uh, to say the least, but um, that's just taken time. And it's and it's about wanting wanting to 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 be a better person. A lot of times people are stuck in their behavior patterns, um, 
sometimes because there's a payoff to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's easier to be a victim because then we have no responsibility. Then nothing is required of us. Then we can complain about society. We complain about our boss. We can complain about our spouse. Um, but then we be, then we live a victim's life, and that that's just not fulfilling, mm. fulfilling at all. So we're right around the corner from the end of the year, and you've heard from a whole variety of different people about what the world is going to look like. You've heard David Burkus talk about the future of work. You've heard Chase Jarvis say that we're moving more and more towards a portfolio model of careers where we can actually showcase our work that we've done. And one of the easiest ways to do that, of course, is to build a website. In fact, it's something that I think everybody should learn how to do at some time or another. And since we're right around the corner from the end of the year, it's a perfect time to get started. And that's where our friends at HostGator come in because they have 30 30% off all of their hosting packages for unmistakable creative listeners. If you're not tech savvy, a super easy to use website builder. And if you want to move hosts from the host that you're currently on, they make it super easy and it's completely free. So visit hostgator.com slash creative and use the promo code creative at checkout for 30% off. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, one of the things that I have found, you know, especially having done so many interviews and, and talking to people from a wide range of ages, is when I talk to people who are, are significantly older than me, um, or you know, th- there seems to be this sort of self awareness um, and wisdom that really only seems to come about from age and life experience. Like there's no mm. other way to get it. It's not like you can read it in a book because I think there's so many things in life where the only way to truly understand these sort of things is to experience them. Yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah, one part of aging too is just you start to you start to um, appreciate uh, your limitations and to accept them. I remember when I was when I was working as a headhunter, um, even before I started my own company, and I started to, to be really blessed and and got off to a, a really great start. I worked for this company for about three years, and I started to see them money coming in it was you know much more than i was ever earning as a as a teacher in the public schools um i thought you know i want to i want to retire by the by the age 40 and i was in my 20s at the time my late tw- my late 20s and i want to retire um so that i would have all this freedom to do all kinds of other things well, year 40 came and went, and age 50 came and went, and I was nowhere, nowhere near that, but I was still making progress. Um, but I started to see that that was really not a very good goal, that I, that I probably could have enjoyed the journey a little bit more had I been f- more fully present in what was happening in the present and not thinking so much about uh, you know making gobs of money now so that I could uh, retire and have fun later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that, um, like heightened presence is the result of age and the fact that, you know, you start to sort of see that your time is limited? You know, I don't, I don't think about my time is limited. I, I think, uh, you know, we, uh, I have a friend who says we have a lot, uh, he's about my age and he says, uh, we have, um, a lot more history than we have future, <laughs> and that's that, that. That's certainly real. Um, but I just want to make best use of the time that I have. I have left. I mean, I've got a lot of emotional energy and 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 psychic energy. Not a, not as much physical energy as I used to, but um, um, I just want to take advantage of all that life has to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, there are just so much so much neat things that that a person can do with their life. Um, and I don't want to waste any more time. I just don't, I just don't want to waste it. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You know, it's interesting. It reminds me of a story. Uh, I remember I was sitting in a coffee shop. I was having probably one of the worst, you know, summers of my life. And there's this guy who would walk in. He walked into the shop and everybody would ask him, how's it going? And every single time they asked him, he would say, it's the best day of my life. And so I finally went up to him and I asked him, I said, and I mean, you know, I know I wrote this as a piece on Medium. I said, what I had to meet you because I, I want to know why today is the best day of your life. And his explanation, the simplicity, but the beauty of it blew my mind. He said, look at it this way. Because there's a certain point in your life where you realize that there's less in front of you than there is behind you, which, you know, goes to, to reinforce your idea that there's more history in mm-hmm. the future. And he said, so if, you know, there's less in front of me than there is behind me, then every day going forward is the best day of my life. Oh, that's great. Great. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the moment that you met your birth father for the first time, because I know you wrote about it in the book, and I knew I had to ask you about it. Yeah, yeah, okay. It was the worst afternoon, or the most awkward afternoon of my life. Not the worst afternoon, but just the most awkward. Well, uh, in the process of searching for my birth father, I um, came in contact with uh, a half-sister that actually she found me. And uh, she found me. and uh, we got to be friends, actually, and, and uh, she lived uh, just uh, 20 miles from where our, our uh, son and daughter were going away to college. And so one weekend, we, we took, I took an extra day off, and uh, Jan and I went down and met her and her significant other, and we really formed an immediate bond. And uh, we were able to spend an afternoon with her, and she was explaining all about our father and what he was like. She showed me pictures. She gave me a whole big description of our family history from from my birth father's side of it. And um, we stayed in contact uh, for for a couple of years. And then then one day she uh, called me or sent me an email and said that she was going to be arranging a family reunion and she was bringing dad up from Florida at the he was living in Florida at the time. And she said, I'd like you to come, and I'd like you to meet your other half-brothers and sisters. And uh, she said, um, we're going to have it on a Sunday afternoon, and 
uh, I'm not telling dad about it until he gets off the airplane. And because if, if I were to tell him now, he may not come. And even after I tell him that we're going to have this reunion, he may get on the plane and go right back home. So they were going driving down to Indianapolis to, to, to pick him up. Well, he did agree to come. And we got there in the afternoon, and I met uh, my other half-brothers and sisters f- from him. And it was very cordial, very nice people. And uh, we were sitting in the living room, and um, all of a sudden, he rings the doorbell. He walks in. And uh, he, he, as I mentioned in the book, he looked like the next-door neighbor who had just come over to borrow a snake to clean out his drain. And he, he was talking with everybody like, uh, like he, he knew everybody so intimately. And when, in fact, uh, I found out some of his children he hadn't talked to in 30, 40 years. But, and he walked past me and just said, hi. And that's all he said. Um, and so what do you say in a situation like that? Well, I'm, a, I'm pretty much of an introvert, so I didn't say anything to him. I had no trouble talking to everybody else. Um, but I just kind of watched him. And he's a very gregarious man, very sociable. Uh, but he had I don't think he had a clue as to why people were there or the damage that he had done uh, in the lives of his children. Uh, it, was ju- it was just very awkward. But I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it. Uh, I, I would have uh, always re- wondered if I hadn't uh, hadn't gone to see him. You know, it, it actually uh, takes me to a part of the book, another place that I, I underlined that I knew I wanted to ask you about this. You know, you said it's sad to see some people controlled by their past where they try to make up for deficiencies from an earlier time by how they live in the present, thinking it will change the past. Um, I know that I have tendencies to do that. I can tell you for, for sure there are moments in my life where I'm doing exactly that. And just reading that made me more aware of it. I'm curious how you change it. Well, uh, I, think, I think every behavior has a payoff. And I find myself asking myself, what's the payoff in behaving the way that I am? And if I'm letting my past control me, uh, there's a part of me that, can, that gives permission to living as a victim. And uh, we're, we're to the point where I'm less responsible. It, it's easier to live as a victim than it is to live as a fully empowered agent of someone who can change and can create the life that they want to that they want to live. But if we live as a as a victim, we we can have excuses. We can have excuses for why we don't certain, do certain things, uh, virtuous things, because we have this. We have this bad past. And so I kind of start with what's the payoff? And, I, and do we want to be a victim or do we want to live a richer life? And I've, I, for one, want to, want to live a richer life. And I, I just don't want to be controlled by my past. And so I don't want to give it the power. And a lot, a lot of times we give, we give the dysfunction in our life a great deal of power. And oftentimes we give power to people that don't even want it. Uh, I've got uh, got some friends that 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 have had uh, dysfunctional families too, and and they they tend to live in that. But um, uh, sometimes there's just a lack of unwillingness or a lack of of wanting to 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 move forward, and and um, and oftentimes just not really knowing what's going on. Like we're just stuck. And when we're stuck, it's really helpful to talk to someone that can get that can help us get unstuck. And that's what counselors do. Mm-hmm. Counselors can point that out to us. A lot of times we, we can't really see that in ourselves. For a long time, I sure couldn't. Um, but oftentimes it takes a fresh set of eyes to, to tell us what's going on. And then once we see what's going on, we think, oh, my gosh, I don't want to live like that. And I can, I can make some changes. It's not as hard as we think. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we, we just go in, in circles like a, a hamster on a, on a wheel that um, we need – it, we need someone that, that, that can point out to us what's, what's really going on and give us a, a perspective and make some observations that can, that can be really helpful to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a perfect setup to talk about uh, a few of the things that really caught my attention as well. I mean, you talked about three emotions in particular, I think, that really kind of um, mm. you know, 
piqued my interest. And of course, I highlighted tons of, uh, of all of this um, anger, forgiveness and recon- reconciliation. And, you know, I just this is one of those passages that stood out to me. We don't like talking about our fears, but somehow in talking about them, we come to realize they're irrational many times. We confuse what's possible with what is probable. So many of our fears are based on what is possible while we ignore its probability. And, you know, it's interesting because you also mentioned sort of the anger that you had towards your parents because um, of the fact that you couldn't verbalize so much of what you were feeling. And, you know, I, I think the, the interesting thing is that anger is one of those emotions that we try to suppress a lot. Um, and I'm just curious, kind of, you know, how do you deal with anger? Like, what what do you tell people who are man, you know, managing anger? Well, I, I, I start by telling them anger is really a surface emotion. And it really clouds and hides uh, one of three other things, one of three other emotions. One would be fear. Like I'm angry, um, I'm really fearful, but it comes out as anger. And men, that's a common response in men, that we don't do fear very well, but we do anger pretty well. We've got that down. Uh, If we're afraid of something, uh, we we have a hard time admitting that we're afraid, but it comes out as anger. Another emotion that it could be is just sadness. We're really sad about something, and it and it comes out uh, as anger because we don't do sadness very well. We don't we don't recognize it often uh, times. And the third possibility is that we're just demanding it. We're just demanding. Um, we're too demanding of life. Our expectations are just way too high, or we have unmet expectations uh, that may have been reasonable expectations, but they but they're just unmet. And so they come out as ang- anger. The way I deal with it, and I try to help people, is, is a great verse in the Bible on anger. But the best anger management uh, advice I can give anyone, it's in the book of Psalms, where the psalmist says, uh, in your anger, and I like how it starts, this is in your anger. It's just making the basic assumption that it, from time to time, we're all going to be angry. But he says, in your anger, uh, sit on your bed and think about it. And then that's followed by this uh, instruction. It's a, the Psalms are actually songs that were obviously meant to be sung. And there's a choral instruction uh, that comes right after that. It's a Greek phrase called sela, S-E-L-A-H, which really means to pause. And so here the psalmist is saying, stop and sit on your bed and think about it, and then think about it some more. Pause and think about it again. And what that's speaking to me is that think about, well, what, where is this anger coming from? And so I look at anger as coming from what am I afraid of, uh, what am I uh, sad about, or what am I just uh, demanding too much or just having unmet expectations. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be very helpful b- both in thinking about my own anger and in, in working with angry people. Whenever I see an angry person, I think they're, they're afraid of something. Uh, I have a theory about about uh, children um, that I picked up from my grandkids, and uh, I think I think most mis- misbehavior in children is because they're afraid, and they get angry when they're afraid, or they misbehave when they're afraid. I've seen many many examples of that with our own grandkids. I write about a, a few of them in, in, in the book, um, but it's a difficult thing to admit that we're afraid, but but psychologists have said that if we boil all the negative emotions down to one, it's basically we're afraid. We're all afraid of something. Mm-hmm. So that's what works for me. <laughs> so, you, you know, I know you also uh, talked extensively about forgiveness and reconciliation. So I, I really you know, want to talk about both of those things because— um, as I as I was reading that, I couldn't help but think, wow, all the things that we're unwilling to forgive people for are basically baggage that we carry with us. And the moment yeah. we can let it go, we effectively create space in our lives for something else. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious, kind of, you know, when you are, you know, betrayed or, you know, deeply hurt by somebody, you know, ranging from a broken heart to, you know, a business partnership to whatever it might be. I mean, there's every range of emotions possible where, you know, somebody has done something that might require you to forgive them. Um, when you're, you know, feeling the depth of that kind of pain, how do you find it in you to forgive, give them? Well, uh, I, I think it starts with, uh, w- if I am going to forgive them, what am I going to forgive them for? And I think there's a step that a lot of people miss. Uh, they're, they're main, they may not be self-aware enough to know 
the pain that they're experiencing and what that what that means and what is it that if I'm going to forgive somebody, what am I going to forgive them for? And naming it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of reconciliation, which I'll come to in a minute. So giving it a name. You know, I'm forgiving them because I suffered loss as a result of what they did to me. I've, I've lost my job. I've lost credibility with my family. I've lost uh, status in the community. I've lost all of that if, if I'm fired unjustly, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, so naming it would be the, be the first thing. The second thing is to, is to look at it in terms of what the Bible talks about forgiveness is, is, is refusing to make the other person pay. Where, yeah, I have got some rights and I'm, I'm entitled to, um, I'm justified in my, in my anger because I truly was harmed in this particular way. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't have been that way. And, you know, logically, I would be entitled to some kind of uh, recourse or compensation, but I'm, I'm not going to exercise that right because I just want to let it go. Forgiveness is just letting it go and refusing to make the other party pay who has harmed us. Mm-hmm. So that's forgiveness. It's refusing. It's relinquishing our rights to have the other person uh, pay for the injustice that they have committed at our hands. And that's a very freeing thing because if you, as you said, you know, if we don't do that, we just carry that around for, for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And it's baggage that we, it's just too heavy, just too cumbersome. Mm-hmm. Reconciliation, however, uh, by, by the way, I should say too, it's, it's not forgetting what happened. It's not, it's not forgetting at all. And just because someone has, has harmed us and we've forgiven them doesn't mean we invite them over for Thanksgiving. Uh, we can still uh, be wary and untrusting of people who engage in untrustworthy behaviors. But we can still forgive them. We just need to avoid them. With reconciliation, uh, that's, that starts with forgiveness. And it does not depend on the response of anybody. You know, you can forgive someone and it doesn't involve anybody else. Uh, they may not even know what, what, uh, how they've harmed you. But with reconciliation, there has to be a, a discussion with the, with, the, with the person that's harmed us uh, where we share what they have done to harm us, how that has impacted us and what that means. And if it's in a relational issue, you know, any part that we may have played to contribute to the problem and ask and making sure that the other person recognizes that as best we can. We want them to know the harm that they've caused and to reconcile with them. We want a recognition on their part. We're asking for a recognition and admission on their part that they indeed have have sinned against us, but we'll commit to not doing that again. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, we can we can reconcile. Uh, reconcile reconciliation doesn't happen as often as as it should, because a lot of times people aren't willing to admit that they're not willing to admit that they're that they've wronged us. I, I read a story, uh, that something that happened to me in the book, where it took um, seven years for the other party to recognize that they had harmed me and how they had harmed me. And then they came, to, and I had forgotten about it, actually. I'd forgotten, forgotten about it in terms of it, it had no impact on me anymore because I really did forgive them. And it, it took a lot of, long time for that sting to wear off. Mm-hmm. But I was able to let that go. Then out of the blue one day, the, the, the person contacted me and uh, he and I met, and and uh, he did everything I just said. He he admitted that that he was wrong and what he did, and committed to not doing it again. And and um, um, I felt like our relationship was was restored. Hmm. So, does forgiveness reduce the sting of whatever pain somebody might have caused you? Yes, but it but it may take a little time. Okay, you know it's it's not. It's not an instant. It's not like you shut off the water and it's, the right. water stops. <laughs> uh, it it can take a little bit of time. Can, yeah, and every situation is different. Um, sometimes we forgive too quickly. Um, I write about in the book how how often sometimes you'll see on TV where news reports where there'll be a shooting and the the loved ones of the parents or the loved ones of whoever was killed. We'll get on TV and talk about how they've forgiven the other the other person, and like everything is normal. Like like they did they got over this in about ten minutes. Mm. 
And I think that's a, that's just a defense mechanism to deal with the pain because we really have to know, uh, as I said before, that what are, what are we really forgiving that person for? And it may take time to recognize that. Mm-hmm. But forgiveness is a supernatural aspect. I don't think we can really do that on our own. I think it takes the power of God working in our life to do that. Mm-hmm. And God speaking into our hearts and our lives to show that, that many times people are, you know, they make, they're making mistakes, but they're, you know, a lot of cases doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. So. so how does all of this tie um, into this whole idea of the richer life uh, in caring for others? Because, you know, there's one other, you know, section of the book that really stood out to me. You said, and so it is with caring for others. It breathes life into our lungs and meets a need we didn't know we had until we take a risk and extend ourselves to others. It broadens our lives far more than around the world cruise for it exposes us to the stories of others and invites us to bless them with God, with what God has blessed us. When we bless others collectively, it brings out the best in us for it motivates us to care in community in ways we might otherwise do not do individually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I th- God, God has made us all for relationships. You know, God himself is a relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They have a relationship. They had a relationship with each other long before uh, the earth was created. And God has called us all to be his image bearer, that we are to reflect his image well. It talks about that in the book of Genesis that the most fulfilling thing that we can do is to reflect the character of God. And one aspect of God's character, as I mentioned, is he's highly relational. He wants a relationship with everyone. And he wants us to have good relationships with each other. He calls us his children. He calls us to to relate well with him, but to relate well with our siblings, um, our Every person on the earth, he he wants us to be in in good, harmonious relationship with them. And the extent that we have these good, harmonious relationships, the more fulfilling life is. It's richer. We we hear stories of people that that are that are encouraging to us, that are stimulating. Uh, we meet people like you, who who I didn't know anything about up until a month ago when our friend Mike told me about about you. Um, our lives are just are just so enriched. I, I remember um, one time I was uh, my wife and I were going to a conference in Michigan, and we had to. Uh, I'm here in Milwaukee, and I still had my business, and had to uh, got home from work on a Friday uh, at, at about five, and we quick quick packed the car and headed headed south to Chicago to go around Lake Michigan to get to to uh, I think it was Gull Lake, Michigan. And it was a rather stressful drive. We're driving through Chicago on a Friday night during rush hour. It was never fun. It was bumper-to-bumper traffic. And we, we get to this um, conference ground in Gull Lake, Michigan. And I discovered that we, I had left half our clothes at home. And I thought, oh, i got to wear the same clothes all weekend. And what are people going to think? And I just really, really crabby, really ornery. And uh, that was on a Friday night. Then Saturday morning, we wake up and... Um, still feeling the same way and we were having breakfast in this cafeteria and uh, we'd gotten our food and I got put it on my tray and I walked to the farthest corner of the cafeteria because I really didn't want to talk to anybody I was just just feeling so crabby and ornery Hmm. well in doing so um, I look up and here's this older man walking toward us with his tray of food and I go oh no He's going to come and sit and talk to us, and I'm going to have to talk back and be cordial. And I thought, I don't want to do this. Well, he came and he sat down and he started talking. And I noticed that he had a, a European accent. And so I just made that observation to him. I said, I noticed you have, you have an accent. Where, where are you from? And he said, well, I'm living in uh, Detroit now, but uh, I was a pastor in a church in Canada for many years. But uh, before that, I I grew up and lived in Holland, the Netherlands. I thought, and there was this long pause, and I'm thinking, hmm, he's this older guy from Holland. And I started doing some mental math in my head. And so I asked him, I said, were you uh, living in Holland during World War II? And he said, yes. And I said, really, what was that like? Well, he proceeded to talk for the next half hour what it was like to live in Nazi-occupied Holland, 
with the soldiers walking down the streets with big uh, you know, assault rifles and how they treated people and just one story after another. And it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating hearing this guy talk. And I said, well, uh, what happened after the war? And why did you, why did you move to, why did you leave? And he laughed and he said, well, uh, at that time, uh, after the war, the, the Dutch government was fearful that the country would not be able to support a large population. The population was growing, and they were worried about they were just worried about overpopulation. So they came up with a program where they would uh, give anyone who agreed to emigrate to leave Holland and never come back except as a tourist uh, what amounted to about twenty thousand dollars. Well, I was 19 years old, and I was looking for adventure, and I thought, hey, I'll take, I'll, that's a great deal. And so I moved to Canada. Well, and I said, well, why did you move to Canada? <laughs> why not the U.S.? And he said, well, I was kind of watching, uh, when we were um, liberated by the Allied forces, I was kind of watching the American soldiers and the British soldiers and the Canadian for- soldiers, and the Canadian soldiers were so much nicer than the American soldiers or the British soldiers. I thought, that's the kind of country I'm going to live in. So I ended up moving to Canada. Well, by that time, we had to leave. And I, you know, breakfast was over. And I noticed that my mood changed 180 degrees, that I had moved from being crabby and, and just totally obsessed with this whole thing about our luggage uh, at home. And just thinking about this man's story and the interesting life that he led, and it was such an encouragement to me, and it was so stimulating and interesting. And it made me think there are lots of stories like that all over. People have have stories that that are just just waiting to be to be told. You mentioned Donald Miller before. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of his also, and uh, he talks uh, in great detail about the power of story and how how story just uh, has so much power to enrich us and grow us. We can we can really learn from people and in, in our relationships if we're willing to step outside of ourselves. So the challenge becomes stepping outside of ourselves because it's so much easier just to, to remain within ourselves. So. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, I can see now why Mike referred you uh, to us as a guest <laughs> because this has been just absolutely fantastic. Uh, uh, so I have one last question, which is how we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, I think it goes back to uh, what I said earlier that God has created all of us on purpose for a purpose. That happens to be a slogan of a of a. Uh, developmentally disabled residential treatment facility about 50 miles from here. It's called Shepherds. It was started by a church back in the 50s, and it's to house developmentally disabled people that um, that can't function alone in society. And, and uh, one of their vice presidents was actually one of our board members. And uh, he just happened to mention that's that's their motto, that, that, that everyone is created on purpose for a purpose. So if we're created on purpose, that presupposes there is no mistakes, that God didn't make a mistake when he, he created us. And so um, that's what makes us un, unmistakable, is the fact that, that we are created by God and that he has a purpose for us here on earth. And he's not making, he hasn't made a mistake with that either. It's up to us to discover what that, what that purpose is. So it's all about why we're here. Wow. And we're here because God put us here and god doesn't make mistakes hmm. well uh, this has been amazing where can people learn more about you and your work well uh they can go to our website uh caringforothers.org uh all one word caring for f-o-r-o-t-h-e-r-s.org um and uh, i'm gonna be starting a blog shortly and that will be johnsertalic.com excellent J- j-o-h-n and sertalic is C-E-R-T-A-L-I-C. And uh, if they're interested in the book that that you have, they can get that on Amazon or through our website too, caringforothers.org. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.